Thanks for tuning in to the Direct Access to Oxford Physical Therapy podcast, where we talk about your body, how it moves, and empowering you with the knowledge to manage and treat your pain or discomfort. You will also get an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at a successful private practice. You have the questions, and we have the answers. Now let's get moving. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Direct Access to Oxford Physical Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Matt. And your co-host, Allie. And we have a special guest joining us today, Dr. Abbott. Welcome back. A return guest. Thank you. Yeah, by popular demand, I might add. I appreciate that. Yeah, your episodes actually did pretty well. So if anybody wants to go back and re-listen, Dr. Abbott has been on a couple of episodes explaining best surgeries and therapies and a little bit about getting back to driving after therapy. After knee replacement, yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you guys want to go back and visit those episodes, he is an experienced podcaster with us. And here we are today talking about total joints again. So... We thought, uh, you know, there's the obvious questions out there, and then there's some questions that patients might not quite think about uh, to ask or to talk about. Right, Dr. Abbott? That's absolutely true. You know, most common questions, you know, patients will ask things like, you know, how long is this going to last? Yeah. Is it going to hurt after surgery? Do I have to do therapy? Uh, (laughs) And those are all standard questions. You know, when can I drive? When can I get back to things? But you know, there's a lot more that goes into a knee replacement and the decisions that you make. And a lot of decisions are, are kind of made automatically for you by the surgeon. So sure. the more patients can understand that and can ask these questions, uh, the more they can at least feel comfortable with that decision making that the surgeon's helping them uh, make. Because honestly, yeah, most patients don't have the knowledge base to say, right. well, I want this type of implant or I need to know uh, why I have this this implant put in versus a different brand. Yeah. Um, but there, there are differences out there, and you need to talk to your surgeon openly so that they understand what your goals are right. and that you can also understand why they're making those decisions and, and how it's going to help you. Yeah, and I think as we continue to move more towards informed consumers, informed people getting health care, I mean, these are good discussions that patients should have. And really at the heart of one of our goals of the podcast is to give direct information to people, a good source of information um, that they can, you know, be more informed about what's going to happen. Absolutely. My informed patients are the ones who do the best. Yeah. Uh, they, they are uh, goal-oriented, but they're also, they know the reason behind why we're doing something, whether that's therapy, whether that's a particular uh, type of implant that we're using or, or a different particular type of surgery that we're performing. Sure. Well, we'll, um, we'll publish all these uh, questions. Allie will put these kind of the, uh, you know, best questions to ask your <laughs> surgeon, kind of interview your physician, if you will. But uh, we want to dig into a couple of them. And, and probably a good place to start is what kind of implant will you be using, right? Sure. So, you know, basically the, the things you, you need to know are there are multiple implant uh, manufacturers out there. And most surgeons are, are routinely using one or two. And there are are times and I would say that you know I typically use uh, three different vendors but a lot of times 90 95 percent of my my knees are done with a single vendor and there's advantages to that uh, because the team that I work with in the operating room knows exactly what step is next they mm-hmm. know exactly how things should move and it's more efficient so mm-hmm. uh, choosing one particular vendor over another uh, some do have uh, different what we call bearing surfaces that can help you have more longevity. Mm-hmm. So particularly the, the knee that I use the most is made by Smith & Nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has uh, a special uh, metallurgy about it that makes it one of the most hypoallergenic 
uh, implants on the market. So uh, there have been some studies of, of people having metal allergies, and this is uh, made out of a particular composite of titanium that allows for the least chance of that to happen to a patient. Is nickel the most common metal that people have an issue with? So it seems to be the one that we see the most. Nickel, uh, and cobalt, and chrome okay. are the other two, uh, huh. which are some of the older uh, generation of implants. Yeah. Titanium uh, is a lot more bio-friendly, uh, mm -hmm. so we have a lot less uh, in the allergy uh, data that say that you know, patients are going to be allergic to titanium. That's, that's almost unheard of uh, versus things like nickel and cobalt. Yeah. So... Uh, moving towards these more advanced implants. And most manufacturers now have a, a titanium knee uh, designed around that idea that, you know, if patients have issues with allergies, this is the way to go. Is that when, like, they say that their body is rejecting the implant? Absolutely. So, yeah, that's a, a common it's way that we explain that in the layman's term is, yes, the body is rejecting the implant. Now, there can be other factors that are going on. It doesn't always have to be an allergy. Sometimes it's it is an infection. Honestly, yeah. is okay. why they're rejecting the implant. Right. But um, so allergies, while they're they're not as common uh, as things like an infection as a complication from sure. surgery, they do happen. And yeah. um, you know there are ways to try to test for metal sensitivity before surgery. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we do a, a skin test, which isn't the best test, but at least gets you a, a starting point. Sure. To see if you have a metal sensitivity. So one of the most common questions is, you know, can you wear jewelry? You right. Know, the ladies oh. know if if the cheap jewelry bothers them <laughs> that, you know, they got to have the pure gold. Or, I thought that know, was just my taste. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the guys typically don't know. So, yeah. so you know, yeah. do you wear a belt buckle? Does it cause a rash? Things yeah. like that. Yeah. Interesting. So it, it is, uh, it's a topic. Uh, for me, it's not a big topic because I already know that I've chosen You've, to use the most hypoallergenic. Yeah. Uh, knee on the market so really it's a it's a no-brainer i don't have to even really ask the question because we're already in the safest category you can be in makes sense very cool um you know i know years ago it was real popular and big debate when things started advancing in knee replacement was this issue of cement or no cement and press fit type uh implants so talk a little bit about that educate patients you know sure. questions around that so yeah the fixation to the bone uh is is something that Obviously, that implant has to be well interfaced to your body uh, for it to function. And whether that's done through a specialized glue that we call polyethyl methacrylate, say that three times uh, yeah, fast. Yeah, I was going to ask you to spell <laughs> or, it. <laughs> or whether it's done with the bone actually integrating into the, the implant, uh, you need a lasting interface. Okay, So traditionally, uh, we started off with the cement, and that was developed you know, way back in the 1960s. It had a really long track record, even with some of the early hips, even really back in the 40s. Um, and we've moved to different phases in joint implants. So there was an earlier generation of what we called cementless knee replacements that uh, didn't necessarily have a good track record. Some mm -hmm. that, uh, that are actually still going, uh, but a lot of patients had early loosening or just didn't have their bone uh, form a good bond to that implant. So they kind of went away from that. We went back to doing the cement uh, more because it was tried and true. I mean, as soon yeah. as you put that cement in, uh, you, we mix it right there in the operating room. We apply it straight to the bone, straight to the implant. We glue those, uh, hold them together nice and firm uh, until it dries. And it dries in about 12 minutes. Okay. And and it's as hard as it will ever be. That's why you can get up and walk on it right away. You yeah. And you don't have to worry about it, you know, loosening right away. The problem is, is still, you know, that that is now a barrier of cement between your bone and that metal. Yeah. 
well, that bond has to stay healthy for as long as, you know, you're going to be around or as long as you're going to be walking on that knee. Sure. So earlier on, we had problems with the plastics in the knees, and they would break down, and they would cause your body to actually attack at that oh interface, gosh. and that's what would loosen things at about 10 to 12 years. So, you know, back when I was training in the early 2000s, uh, that we would tell patients, yeah, 10, maybe 15 years are what you're going to get out of this knee. Yeah. Now we're starting to see, you know, survivorships of those implants be 20 years, almost 80% of the time. So we've gotten better with our techniques and the wear of our implants has gotten so much better that that's not happening. Still, uh, the next generation of implants, uh, we're still being developed and and more and more companies are coming out with another generation of cementless knee replacements. Mm -hmm. Now, the the idea is great because you don't have an extra bond of cement the bone is actually growing right into the back of the metal which has a specialized pores in it so the bone can grow in it works really really well in the hip so Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody who has a hip replacement right now has a cementless hip yeah the difference in the knee is the forces there are so much different in in what we call shear so back and forth you've got lots of different rotations that can add stress to that component so that's why cement does really really well patients who have cementless knees usually will say that they have more pain in the early phase of recovery because that bone is still trying to grow into the implant the other thing about cementless knees is that they do still have a slightly higher revision rate, meaning they need another surgery uh, to redo the knee in the first two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, that doesn't typically happen at all with cementless knees unless you have a, a catastrophic infection or something that's 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 severely long, or you fall and have a fracture. Yeah. Uh, but with cementless, you have to be critical of that first two years because that bone takes time to grow into the implant. And if it just never sets up a firm interface, what it becomes is a, what we call a fibrous interface. And it, and it, it looks good on x-ray, yeah. but the patient still has pain. Sure. So it's just something to be aware of when you're choosing your implant and you know, know what your surgeon's preferences are and what their track record is with success and, and how often do they see their cementless knee needing to be revised or, or uh, things like that if they're choosing to do uh, cementless fixation versus a traditional cement. Yeah. Are there issues, uh, you mentioned mixing the cement, are there different ways to mix it or procedures sure. with that that make differences? Yeah, so we've learned a lot about cement since it's been been uh, developed. And initially they just you know put it in a bowl, basically mixed it with a spoon. Yeah. And we've come up with better techniques now that it's actually mixed under vacuum pressure because that keeps air out okay. of there. Yeah. So you don't have extra pores in that mm-hmm. cement. And you, do, you should ask your, your surgeon if they are using cement, how do they mix it? So... Mm-hmm. Particularly for me, I, I'm a real stickler. I use a, what's called a, a, a mixing gun. So it's basically uh, attached to a device that makes it spin, and mm-hmm. it's done under vacuum pressure. So we don't even touch it with our fingers. Uh, you try to touch it as little as possible. You put the cement directly on the bone, directly on the implant, and put those together so you don't have any extra uh, fluids or anything between that bond because, like I said, that's your bond. That's how uh, this implant is going to be firmly fixed to your body, hopefully for for the rest of the time that you need it. Exactly. You want it in there secure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If people Google knee questions, they might see something pop up about cross-linked polyethylene. Absolutely. And they're probably going to wonder, what is that What does that that even mean, right? (laughs) So... So that's that's really the advantage that led to uh, our implants lasting longer is that that plastic surface. So 
if you think of your, your knee implant, so there's a metal piece that goes on the thigh bone, there's a metal piece that goes on the shin bone. Well, in between those is the polyethylene. And you really, you can't see it on x-ray. It looks black. It's just plain space. Yep. But it's a high-density plastic, specially designed to uh, provide that bearing surface between the metals. And uh, first, our polyethylene was just what we called standard polyethylene, which means uh, the process that they made it, it, it had... Uh, the mechanical properties when it came out, they didn't add anything to it to, to make it stronger. Sure. Okay. Then we developed the idea of cross-linking the polyethylene, which just simply means that there's a, a another process that's going on to create stronger bonds between each of those molecules, the polyethylene, so it's harder for it to break apart and break down. And that's led to these polyethylenes now that, like the one in the knee that I use, says it could take up to 30 years to wear out, which yeah. we never saw, you know, in the early 2000s. Sure. So, much so better durability. Much better durability, and you don't get that wear uh, particles that are attacking at the cement interface with the bone. So chances of you having a long-lasting implant that's not going to cause you problems once you get through all your recovery are great. There are other companies that, that uh, do another step with uh, cross-linking, and they're adding vitamin E also, which is what we call an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. So the idea there is to try to you know, preserve that polyethylene a little bit longer to keep it from breaking down in the environment of the body. So all these advances are really the, the questions you should be asking because the problems that we see now are, are you know, trying to get to a you know, bargain basement price Sure. Uh, when it comes sure. to a knee replacement. And uh, so uh, realize that, you know, what you're making as an investment as a patient is, is similar to buying a car. In fact, you actually want it to last longer than a yeah. car. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, right? maybe it would have yeah. been So more you might get a good 10, 15 <laughs> years out of a car. Yeah. Uh, but you want, you know, 20 to 30 years out of your knee. Sure. And it's in your body. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so asking these questions of, you know, am I getting, you know, the better types of implants? Am I getting cross-linked polyethylene? How are you mixing my cement if you're using cement? If you're not using cement, then, you know, what's your your issues? Have you seen issues with your, with your sure. ingrowth and, and so forth? So, and that, you know, the the idea of going more towards a porous knee also is, is something that leads us to, towards robotics, right? Yeah. Because being more precise in how you cut the bone allows those fits to occur to make a tight interface to allow bone to grow into the implant. So... Uh, it all kind of dovetails into the technology is there, uh, but, you know, just don't go shopping for the, the cheapest price You're necessarily right. yeah. for your knee replacement because you might uh, save a couple thousand dollars, but 10 years from now, you might find out that it would have been worth it to spend another two or $3,000 to get a better implant. For sure. So we're looking at preparing people for success, and we talk about the implant type and the methodology. And obviously, patience and a big part of it is going to be recovery and rehab. But we've talked before, and we can just spend a minute, um, even before post-op rehab, we like to talk about something called prehab, right? Absolutely. Prehab is really where it's at. Again, like we talked about at the very beginning, informing patients, patients understanding more about what's going to happen to them before surgery and knowing that they can take an active role in their recovery and planning before surgery, uh, it really makes a big difference. In their comfort level coming into surgery, they're just much more confident to say, yeah, I know I can go home right after surgery. I, I've already got my exercises. You know, I already picked up my throw rugs from the house. Yeah. I've, I've set things up so that I can be on basically one floor plan for a little while so I don't have to negotiate the stairs. Or, you know, I, I've made other arrangements and, and I can be safe at home because falling is 
is one of the big things we really harp on. Uh, sure. That's the, the fastest way to undo your surgery is to fall after surgery. Oh. Yeah. And that's where prehab is, is important because you can strengthen beforehand, you can mentally prepare, and you can prepare your environment at home uh, with some good coaching. That's what therapists are, are here to help us with. So yeah. as, a, as a surgeon, you know, my number one job is to surround myself with a team uh, that can help my patients get the, the best outcome that they want. And, yeah. and that involves, you know, people like great quality physical therapists like the folks at Oxford who understand that, you know, the more we can provide patients with resources, be available, and give them the coaching, the better they're going to do. Yeah. I swear it sounds like you pay him to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, great no, no. partnership. <laughs> I mean, you know, the patient's really... I think the exciting thing is seeing these advancements. It's just for the benefit of the patient. You know, they're they're more informed going into it. They're getting better faster. In many cases, they're starting outpatient therapy in, you know, 24 to 48 hours in some cases. I mean, right. it's just remarkable the progression that's happened. No. Um, and we're setting the bar high, and that's, you know, that's part of what we want to do at best is to create that patient-centered focus of care, and that's why it's, you know, it's great to have partners like Oxford to, to help execute that. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit just for a minute, um, you know, even all the best preparation and things, there may be warning signs that come up. Patients may see or feel something. What should folks be looking for after surgery that's a red flag, and then what do they do? Sure. So, I mean, you know, the most common question we get after surgery and what patients call the most on them, obviously, is pain, right? They, mm -hmm. they may go home from surgery with a lot of numbing medicine on board that wears off. And they weren't just sure how that pain spike was going to occur. They knew it would happen, and they just want to make sure it's normal. So that's very common. And, you know, like I say as a surgeon, I'm never uh, put off by a patient calling asking a question because you don't know. You're, yeah, you're exactly. not the doctor. And sure. if you've got a question, you need to have it answered. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, I always tell you the warning signs you really want to watch out for. Obviously, number one is the incision. you got to make sure it's clean. You, you may get some drainage on your incision for the first two to three days. That's considered normal. Much beyond three days, then it's concerning because even if it's bloody drainage, uh, anything that's coming out, we say, then the bacteria can get in. Yep. So there's a worry uh, about you know early potential for infection, and you really probably need to get in and see your surgeon, see if there's anything else that needs to be done to, to address that. Sometimes, you know, it can be... Uh, so aggressive that we tell you we got to take you back in the operating room, open things up, clean it out really good because we just don't want an infection to start. For sure. Um, the other things we talk about are, are blood clots. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everyone's put on some type of medication to help thin the blood after surgery. The majority of patients right now we're using aspirin, which is a safe, effective way to reduce uh, uh, clotting risk, and it and it tends to not have a, a big bleeding risk either. Mm -hmm. um, for the majority of patients, that works well. You still got to watch out and make sure that, and it's usually calf pain, yep. which you're going to get a little bit after surgery, but calf pain that's worse uh, with activity and worse if you're moving your ankle up and down. Uh, we do a special test called a Homan sign where you kind of pull the ankle up, mm -hmm. uh, point the toes towards the ceiling. If that's really bothering the calf, it could be a sign of a, of a blood clot. So oftentimes, if, if patients are calling with that specific symptom right after surgery for me, a lot of times I'll send them straight for the ultrasound exam. I won't even have them come into the office simply because we also know that our physical exam ability to tell if a patient has a blood clot is 50-50. Yeah. I'm as good as flipping a coin 
as I am having that patient coming in and trying to make sure whether or not they have a clot, if they have symptoms. Right. So if they have symptoms, they should be calling and, and we should be sending them for an ultrasound exam to see if they do have a blood clot. That ultrasound exam is 98% accurate. So if that's negative, then you're, you, know, you know you're safe. But the problem is with hip and knee replacements, you are high risk regardless of the rest of your health status developing a blood clot afterwards that's why we always use an aspirin or something stronger if you have other clinical risk that says you need a, another medication like Coumadin or sure. Eliquis. Sure. Well I um, you know I really appreciate the relationship that we have with Dr. Abbott like many of our docs I'm, we uh, we and our therapists have Dr. Abbott's cell phone can text him can call him and welcomes the questions and I think that just gets the patient the immediate help they need and so I just sure. uh, you know, I think you know, patients, you know, as soon as they have a question, it's always weighing on their mind. Yep. Yeah. And until they can get an answer from a trusted source, uh, it's going to keep them sleepless. They're going to be anxious. Yeah. They're going to Google gonna, it. Exactly. And then they're going to Google it, right? <laughs> and, and if they Google it Send and they come up with spiral. our podcast, yeah. then they might get the right answer. Okay, right. That's but the way if we they Google it. it and they come up someplace else, they might get right. led down a path that just, you know, puts them at, at even more unease. Yeah, exactly. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not good. So yeah. we want patients to be informed, but we also want to be there to be available as partners in their health care because we know uh, I don't expect patients to, to find all their own answers. I expect us to be able to help them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we appreciate you being here with us today. Yeah. Give patients direct access to the information. There it and, is. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll have all the questions posted. But like we said, we encourage you to, um, you know, interview your physician, get yeah. your questions answered, get prepared. And um, one more time, Dr. Abbott, just tell the listeners where you are and where they can find you. Sure. So you can find me at Best Surgery and Therapies. We're down uh, on Gilbert Avenue, 2001. Uh, Gilbert uh, is our office location. You can call us at 513-572-8670 to make an appointment. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, Get thanks, guys. Get the most guys. out of your bionic knee. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We'll talk thanks, to you Dr. soon. Abbott. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at OxfordPhysicalTherapy.com. And you can also find us on our social media pages like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. Remember, you do not need a doctor's referral to receive physical therapy in the state of Ohio and Kentucky, where we offer double the care for less than half the cost. You can schedule appointments online or stop into any center for a free screen, what we like to call a bee visit. Please write a review, send us a comment or message on our social media platforms. And until next time, keep it moving.